This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. This is a critical month for maternal health in Australia and around the world. It started with International Day of the Midwife on May the 5th, when the pivotal State of the World's Midwifery Report was released, tellingly titled, Follow the Data, Invest in Midwives. It provides extensive evidence for why midwifery care should be central to improving the health of mothers and babies and reducing preventable deaths in childbirth. The United Nations is further highlighting this today by putting the spotlight on one of the most devastating and tragic childbirth injuries with the International Day to End Obstetric Fistula. The UN goal is to end this preventable childbirth trauma by 2030 calling it a violation of human rights and a reminder of gross inequities. Today on The Gender Card, we speak to two esteemed experts in this field from Griffith University, Dr. Elizabeth Newnham and Dr. Rosalind Donellan Fernandez. Dr. Ros Donlan Fernandez, Program Postgraduate Director of Primary Maternity Care at Griffith University and Senior Lecturer. Liz Newnham and I am a lecturer in midwifery at Griffith University. Thank you so much, Liz and Ros, for joining us on the Gender Card. Thanks, Nance. We're delighted. So it's wonderful to talk about midwifery and the importance of this model of maternity care with you today, particularly on this day, International Day to End Obstetric Fistula. Goodness, that's a mouthful. But can you tell us about the significance of this day and and this problem that maybe people beyond uh, midwifery may not know much about? Sure, Nance. I guess for people who would like to read more, the World Health Organisation have recently uh, released new guidelines on obstetric fistula, which has a whole raft uh, of both information and policy and service guidelines for people across the globe. Thankfully, in Australia, obstetric fistula isn't a common obstetric problem for women, but it is a very devastating childbirth injury to women who do experience it. It's lethal to unborn babies. The good news is it's not only treatable, but it's largely preventable. And from our privileged perspective here in Australia, we look to countries in other parts of the globe, lower resource and middle resource countries where um, obstetric fistula is much more common. And it's essentially what it is. It's a structural uh, issue that arises in a woman's body. It's a hole in the birth canal caused by protracted obstructed labour. And if it's left untreated, it can lead to infection, disease and infertility. And Worryingly as well, this structural damage causes women to leak urine and faeces and in other uh, areas of the globe where uh, gender relations and status of women are very different uh, or maybe very different from what they are in Australia, these can cause other broader social problems 
such as um, partners and husbands abandoning the woman, her community shunning her, her employment opportunities vanished and the woman being almost outcast and resigned to a life of misery and isolation. Sounds horrendous. Is it really possible to end obstetric fistulas as you've described them? It sounds like such a a huge problem. How do you prevent that? But certainly through through social policy and through access to good care during childbearing, uh, pregnancy and childbearing and integrated services. So there's approximately about 500,000 women and girls actually living with this condition now around the world. And it's it can be caused from child marriage, so young bodies that aren't ready for pregnancy and childbirth or unintended pregnancy. Those population groups are really vulnerable. And the COVID-19 pandemic has also exacerbated the problem. It concerns a violation of bodily autonomy and also where there's disruption to things like family planning and sexual and reproductive health services and inequity in getting access to health care. But the the World Population Fund has actually... um, launched and leads the campaign to end fistula and that's operating now in more than 55 countries in relation to prevention, treatment and rehabilitation efforts. So with skilled family planning and skilled birth attendants such as midwives and emergency obstetric care, it can be treated and corrected but it's much better if we can prevent it in the first instance and the other issue I just mentioned in terms of those women who are already living with this issue the reconstructive surgery that's available many of those people don't know about the treatment they can't access it and they can't afford it so this is where um, the United Nations Population Fund is supporting currently more than 120,000 women and girls to have this restorative surgery. It's good that there's such a focus on this issue that seems to be encouraging progress. As I say, without a doubt, and I don't know if Liz wants to make a comment in relation to, you know, some of the broader gender issues associated with this in in terms of, you know, respectful care and access to care. I think it is a gender issue. Like you say, Ros, it's one of the big problems is about young girls having babies too young, having, you know, being married into cultural practices that support child brides and also this, the nutrition quality for women in some countries is much lower than the nutrition that is available to men in that society. And it's definitely, you know, childbirth in all of its forms in every country in the world has a gendered history and certainly in the western world we do have a strong history of the imposition of patriarchal values onto what was historically a female practice and you know you could see that coming in several hundred years ago throughout Europe and and that's been imported into Australian childbirth as well so the whole medicalization of birth is actually a a kind of based on principles of patriarchy and colonisation. It's interesting how culture uh, has such a huge influence on this very physical process. Uh, I mean, you know, women have given birth to babies for as long as humankind has existed, but when did that really medicalisation of childbirth start? 
Well, it started in in Western Europe, and this is why it's a kind of a colonising thing as much as anything, because those practices were then exported with colonisation. But so, you know, in about the 17th century, probably, is when the male midwives really started making, you know, the man midwives, they were called, started making inroads. And part of that was to align themselves with the scientific discourse, which was really only just starting itself, coming out of Enlightenment era and the beginnings of science, really. But they were also aligned with other powerful kind of institutions, like they were more able to, they had relationships with politicians and as it was then, and policy making and writing in journals and those kinds of things as they went on that midwives didn't really have access to. So the way that birth was taken over in that way was very much without any sense of what is best for the women, what is best practice in terms of what we would now say this is, you know, a kind of evidence-based practice. And it was very much centred around the practitioner and what was going to benefit them and that there are elements of that that have remained and so the humanization of birth there is now a a global attention on the fact that we've swung too far the other way and I mean in saying that what Ros was just saying about these places where women can't access good care in a timely way that issue exists as well, but the, the that issue isn't fixed by more medicalization. It's fixed by more midwives in more places. And the State of the World's Midwifery Report, which just came out in on the 5th of May, uh, the newest edition of that, is basically saying that we need globally 900,000 more midwives. Goodness. Now, these are mostly in the low-income countries mm. and in Africa. But the point being that we need good midwifery, low cost in a way, primary health care, much more than we need the, the bells and whistles and the emergency stuff, which is also needed. But the focus has been there far too much. So Liz has made that point about about the number of midwives needed uh, across the globe, the shortfall, which is about basic primary healthcare workforce. And it doesn't matter where you are, if you're in a low income, a middle income or a high uh, income or resourced, well-resourced country, you, if you're a woman who's pregnant and having a baby, your best quality care will come from a well-educated, skilled midwife, whether you are, are healthy and have a straightforward pregnancy or whether you develop complete complexities or in a, are in a complex socio-cultural context, which many women are, and particularly in relation to their gender, um, that the status of their, their sort of gender equality, wherever they are. But the two points I want to make about how midwives work in, in relation to all those contexts, there was a really good report came out to add on to those that Liz mentioned, 2014, about six or seven years ago, when the um, mid Lancet Midwifery Series Quality Maternal and Newborn Framework was published. And the title of that paper really says it all. It was too much too soon or too little too late. So the too much too soon is what is the problem we've got in the first world, you know, well-resourced countries. Healthy women are getting too many 
too much intervention that causes higher morbidity and mortality in some instances for them and their babies. And not just physical issues, but things like birth trauma, perinatal mental health problems, uh, problems with attachment with their babies, lack of breastfeeding, all, all sorts of long-term sequelae that, that follow on from our over-intervention in birth. Whereas you look to the low resource settings, an obstetric fistula is a prime example of that, where women are not getting skilled birth attendants, and so they may be in obstructed labour for days. They haven't got access to decent primary maternity care, i.e. skilled midwife, who can monitor the progress of their labour and organise to get them transferred to a health facility and good quality integrated tertiary level care, if indeed their country has access to that. And so these women end up with these um, horrific injuries. So that's too little too late. And there are many examples of this. Caesarean section is one. There's another really good study which shows the rate of, of surgical operative birth is absolutely unjustified in many high-income countries in, in terms of, of there being a medical or obstetric need for that, that it is simply over-intervention, whereas women in those other settings, lower-resourced and middle-income, could really benefit from access to those operative, skilled medical obstetric care. For example, when they're in obstructed labour, it's life-saving for them and their baby, and it prevents these other you know, long-term horrific injuries. So it's complicated and it's varied, varied. Yeah. Isn't <laughs> it about- interesting that midwifery is the answer to both of those extremes, as you say, for, for both the uh, the lower socioeconomic areas of the world and also for the higher economic areas of the world where there's just so much, uh, too much intervention. Yeah, and it is interesting. I'll just get, I'm just on that point, Ros, that Ros was making. So the World Health Organization says around 10 to 15% is the optimal number of cesarean sections that is going to benefit and not cause harm. So it's not an overuse. So you do see countries where the cesarean section rate is maybe 8% or something like that, which is not actually good. You know, we we want it to be enough that it, it gets to save women's lives, but not so much that it actually starts to increase mortality, which cesarean section does increase the rate of maternal mortality because it's a major operation and for example in the united states where there is a lot of intervention you know it's a very medicalized system but also there is a lack of access because they don't have public funding you know their healthcare system is not brilliant either they're one of the only western countries where their mortality rate is increasing actually rather than decreasing maternal mortality rate has been going up in the last few years so that's an issue that they're dealing with at the moment and some of what they're trying to bring in is how do we bring down the cesarean section rate and how do we increase normal vaginal birth because that is going to save the lives of women. I think that might Um, surprise a lot of people that cesareans can actually increase child mortality but or the maternal mortality as well. Yes. Yes. But yes. they still have this um, attitude, I, I think, certainly in Australia from my conversations with, with other mothers, but uh, that it's the safer option that, uh, that, and it seems to be pushed on them in many ways. Oh, yes. And this is, you see, now this is where that whole history comes in. Mm. <laughs> this is why, exactly. this is my big, you know, kind of, this is where I get on my soapbox. Because when the obstetric model kind of came in and took over at a time when midwives were not really able to hold 
the ground because of all those things I discussed. They were women. They weren't necessarily educated. They Some of them couldn't write or whatever, you know. And so there's a the whole thing has been built actually on misinformation and it's been built on misinformation about birth, misinformation about women's bodies and how the best way to push a baby out, what's important to women and misinformation about what midwives do and how midwifery is beneficial to that process because they didn't want midwives practicing. So there was a huge campaign to discredit midwives. It was overt. They weren't trying to hide anything. They would write things in medical journals saying, how do we get rid of these pesky midwives that keep trying to, you know, come back and look after women? And I'm not saying that they, you know, that everything that midwives did back then was necessarily great practice. Like, you know, obviously that's not the case. And we don't really know what midwives did because midwives weren't writing it down. There are a few midwifery texts, but some of them were written by obstetric practitioners. So I'm not saying that that was an ideal situation either, but the point is we've lost a lot of that knowledge. All that collective wisdom lost. And and going back so long, I think, I mean, I, I thought that this was a relatively recent phenomenon, but obviously not. No, and the other points I want to make that add on to what Liz has just said, this is why knowing your history and where you came Mm -hmm. from is critically important to knowing where you need to go in the future in terms to improve women's gender equality wherever they are, and particularly in terms of sexual and reproductive health and pregnancy and childbearing, whether they're women who want to um, have babies or or whether they may be women who, who don't. Because to add on to all those issues Liz raised, my soapbox is now we have gotten to the point where systemically and structurally we have a lot of these problems embedded within our socio-political context in low and low-resourced and high-income countries. And one example, Liz mentioned the United States. So there's no universal health coverage there. And if you look at the inequitable outcomes for women in pregnancy and childbearing, they are very much divided among racial and class lines. So to to put it bluntly, poorer women and women of colour get less care because because there's no universal access to health care and they get poorer outcomes, i.e more of them and their babies um, die, you know, to put it bluntly. So that's that's an affluent, you know, rich first world nation. And in, in our own context in Australia, where we have all these higher interventions, you know, on women, we have medical interventions in childbirth. We have really good evidence. We have had some really good policy, which every 10 years gets trotted out again. The National Maternity Services Plan, currently the national strategic approach to maternity services with its four pillars of safety, choice, access, is respect the other? And respect, thank you, should go first, <laughs> shouldn't it? Respect should be first. <laughs> and yet, so this is great policy, but it's just not being implemented at the systemic level to address these issues. How do we address it with universal access in terms of our underserved groups in this country and our vulnerable groups that get poorer outcomes as compared to other groups? Our government really needs to step up and we need to accelerate those programs, less preterm birth, less intervention, medicalisation of birth and actually closing the gap on inequitable health outcomes. 
we're talking about American, you know, the problems there, but here Indigenous women have far worse outcomes in terms of maternal and neonatal health outcomes. And the birthing on country research is absolutely showing that culturally safe practices and actually building in Indigenous knowledges, because talking about, you know, colonisation of midwifery and birth in terms of what's happened in Europe and the fact that that was exported here, women, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have been having babies in this country for, you know, (laughs) 60,000 plus years and in fact I was reading a a historical midwifery text and there aren't many actually Mm. uh, about Australian midwifery history written by Gaff Smith I can't remember her first name but anyway Mavis and she was saying actually when when the Europeans turned up here and white women were having babies in in the Australian soils you know on the land that in the indigenous women if it hadn't been for their support then there would have been a lot more maternal death in white women and I think think that decolonization the principles of decolonization and and for me it's it's the same kind of thing as saying we need to reclaim that midwifery knowledge and we need to turn things around on their heads and we need to think about what knowledges are already there and start thinking about things in a different way, including those principles of Indigenous health and cultural safety and the spiritual connection to country. Part of the reason that we have these policies that keep coming out and and governments that sort of talk about implementing midwifery models and yet don't actually implement them is because we are still getting resistance from the medical profession structurally. And I'm not bagging doctors here. There are many fabulous doctors practicing um but from a structural point of view and a systemic point of view the medical associations are quite vocally anti-autonomous midwifery practice and they when the government tries to strategically go that way they are oppositional so how do we rectify that i mean it just seems interesting to me that despite overwhelming evidence showing the benefits of midwifery few women still have access to this ideal model of midwives providing that continuity of care you're dealing with such big systemic structural problems here well i think overthrowing the patriarchy would be a good start (laughs) and then after that (laughs) well well, for a um an alternative, but a, but a, but a, um, a, a different strategy because I think you need multiple strategies to get any change anywhere, anytime, and to be able to sustain it. And you know, relationships um, relationships are important in any human endeavour. Respectful human relationships, and certainly in terms of providing quality maternal newborn care for women with healthy pregnancy and for those mothers and babies who experience complexities you need a breadth and depth of experience and you need good collaboration both between the providers the workforce uh, of people who work in those systems who are men and women but also you need from a systems point of view you need integration of those systems and you know that sort of change is hard and it's what we've got in Australia in terms of facility-based institutionalized child care and some of the practices 
disrespectful or otherwise or over-interventive or otherwise that may go on within some, not all, of those places and contexts. It's incredibly, you've got to, you've got to address the relationships and then you've got to address also the redesign of services and that, that does take planning, time, monitoring, evaluation and, you know, accountability. And that this is your area, Liz, politics, you know, so the lobbying and the advocacy to make government, whoever it is, accountable at the local level and also people who deliver services, you know, to make them motivated and have enough buy-in to want to provide, to, to want to change and redesign their services with the types of models that are actually going to get those good outcomes for different groups of people is absolutely critical. And until we've got that sort of healthy collaboration and respectful relationships, you know, we just keep coming up against a, a brick wall. Absolutely. And I think talking about collaboration, it's also comes from advocacy and the women themselves. So when you see groups of women who have experienced disrespectful care or what we now call dehumanized birth practices. So that whole discourse came out of South America and Brazil, in Brazil particularly. And what happened is there was a network of women who just were saying, this is too much. We can't be treated like this. You know, they were actually talking, they coined the term obstetric violence. And what that meant was any kind of violence that occurred in that setting, in the birth setting. So it could have, it could be any practitioner can conduct that violence you know it's not just obstetricians it's midwives as well and when you read the documents that have come out about how women are treated during childbirth including not giving consent to having parts of their bodies cut being talked down to being hit or pushed or forced into practices that they don't want to do it's it's absolutely mind-blowing so I think networking, advocacy, activism is also how these things get changed. And the law, there was a law, uh, you know, from that South American perspective in Venezuela in 2007, they actually formed legislation, became part of legislation that obstetric violence was defined as a punishable form of violence against women. So, you know, I think there's absolutely ways that these things can be addressed, but you know, like you pointed out, they some of this stuff is hidden. And the way that we talk about medical intervention in Australia particularly is always in terms of safety and prevention, like that point you made about women thinking that cesarean section might be safer in some way. And that comes down to discourse and and how knowledge is produced and reproduced in society. And, and when you start to really pull some of that back you can just see that it, it's it's really just like this kind of web of words and actually making something sound safe when it really isn't safe getting that knowledge out there Liz I mean it, it struck me too reading some of the research that it's not even just benefits at childbirth but right through that first 2000 days of life isn't it to have midwifery rather than that more interventionist model Yes. yes, and one of the reasons <laughs> that midwifery works, it, to come back to that relationship point, is because there is, is a relationship there. And so things don't get missed. 
you know, where if you think about a fragmented model of care where women are in and out of these hospital appointments, there's a registrar sitting there going through all the blood tests for that week, ticking them off, seeing who needs to be followed up, or might maybe it's a midwife doing that. When you have a midwife following a woman through and she gets that woman's blood results, she knows who that woman is and she's going to call her up and say, I got this back. This is what it's saying. We need to have a conversation about this and see which way you want to go forward. And that's partly why it's safer because the relationship actually makes it safer. And and that's not even talking about the sort of feelings of safety and trust that we know hormonally support the birth process because birth is a hormonal, you know, as you, as you say, it's a physiological process. It's also a socio-cultural process. And women who feel supported, safe and respected can kind of get into that zone where her hormones are going to essentially work to push the baby out. Now, everything Liz has said is supported by really high quality evidence and good data. And that was the theme for Midwives, International Midwives Day this year was invest in midwives, follow the data. It's really um, a human rights issue, isn't it, by the sound of it? it absolutely Mm. is a human rights issue. Mm. And there is a group called Human Rights in Childbirth who are, you know, who are, I think they got together around 2012 maybe or because it is a human rights issue. And again, just on the back of what Ros was saying, that's not to say, and this is, I think, where some of these... Some of these public health messages can get misinterpreted. And get confused. It is confusing for people. Mm. Yeah. But when you have that continuity of care with the midwife, even if the woman does have an emergency caesarean section because that is the best way of birthing for her baby and that they are, like I said, you know, 10 to 15% are actually necessary, then they can support that woman and that baby to, you know, get back on track and to, to... do the things that we know are then going to kind of reset those pathways and support breastfeeding and that that kind of thing. So it's not, you know, we absolutely want to promote normal vaginal birth as, a, as the best way to go. And then when it doesn't go that way because of a necessary effect, then, you know, then supporting ways around that, that women can still, women and babies are still supported in in all of the rest of it. Particularly when you think of even for for women and, and mothers, the, the rise really in, in postpartum um, depression and surely a lot of it seems to come back to that, that lack of uh, continuity of care, someone who actually really has understood what that, that mother and that child has gone through. Yeah, and it's things like basic health literacy, you know, which very broadly across the the population groups, depending on level of education, you know, cultural beliefs, religious practices, they're affected by a whole raft of things. And unless you have that strong relationship with another person who can translate um, or facilitate those messages in, in whatever way they're, um, they're, they're able to be understood by you, that that can create yes huge problems and I think one of the no I I don't think I know one of the um, other hidden benefits of continuity as well certainly midwives you know are educated skilled and well able to provide care for women with healthy pregnancy but women who do have real 
complexities, whether they're physical or psychosocial, and that's one area of my own research, those women actually benefit more by having access to continuity of care and and in many ways arguably needed even more so women with pre-existing mental health issues or um, in social contexts whether that's domestic violence intimate partner violence or or a raft of other complicated circumstances you know that they are new arrivals here one public health program I used to work in 15% of the of the women cared for on that program were women from refugee background and new um, newly arrived to Australia and some of the trajectory of of their pregnancy and their journey was just un- unbelievable really and until they had that established relationship with a midwife to assist them through the rest of their care and navigating the other complexities, you know, finance, home, interpreters, care of other children, access to so many different systems, you were not going to get, you know, positive health outcomes without those core relationships and that model of care in place for those women, or you weren't going to optimise the outcomes for them and their, their babies. Because there are conflicting messages here that that women have to sort through, isn't there? Because even Absolutely. if you think of Queensland as one of only two Australian jurisdictions without publicly funded home birth, I mean, for many women that would make them think, well, home birth's dangerous, that I can't, that that's not an option for me because that's the official policy. Yes. And having those options available is a really important way of giving women the messages that this is a safe option and and, I mean again the moving of home birth into the public sector under the kind of obstetric umbrella also has brought its own issues it's much more restrictive in a in a way it has these sort of blanket policies so it's not as individualized as a private midwifery model might be but it does send that message to women that are I'm having my first appointment at the hospital I don't really know what I'm doing because I'm having my first baby and you know none of my friends have had a baby or whatever and the midwife is sitting there telling me that I can have my baby here I can have my baby in the birth center I can have my baby at home all with the same midwives that work in the hospital it must be a safe option it must be okay to do this if if you know, if I'm being handed this information at my booking visit. So it absolutely does make it more accessible. The cost makes it more accessible, you know, the free, you know, it's free. So, yeah, I think it it really does send that message. And then women get set up. You know, if we can provide that for a first, the woman having her first baby, then that sets her up for positive parenting experiences, next birthing experiences so it really does provide excellent service in that way look it does and I think, you know, if you, again, look at those four um, tenets of the National Strategic Approach to Maternity Services in Australia at the moment, one of them is choice, choice and safety. The evidence we know shows that for women who have high quality, um, skilled midwifery attendants and, and are screened well, if 
they have a healthy pregnancy, then the outcomes for birth at home are equivalent to, in terms of safe, safe outcomes for them and their baby. Certainly, there may be circumstances where the woman may develop complications or other complexities during the pregnancy. And if she has that continuity of relationship in a continuity midwife-led model, then that provider is going to refer on to other services that may be indicated, whether they be medical or, or other support services. And the woman may then follow a seamless transition into a higher level of care as required and or if she or her baby need transfer of care at any point. But the evidence actually shows that birth at home in with a properly uh, skilled birth attendant and in, where it's well integrated into the system and there's good relationships and collaboration, the outcomes are equivalent. And so I actually find it very difficult to understand why it, in a country such as Australia where we've got you know, a federation of, of different states and territories, why women in some states and territories have access to a public funded birth at home program and why women in other states don't. You know, there's only two states at the moment that don't have access to, for women. I've come from another state that has three public funded birth at home options for women. So the just this is one of those issues, I think, around the political advocacy and lobbying and also accountability by government for implementation of, of services that align with, with good policy and evidence, but also in terms of their accountability for service redesign. And that then speaks to the heart of getting on board those relationships at a local and regional level that are going to be supportive for that that redesign. It, it seems like almost a big spider's web of all these different <laughs> organisations and bureaucracies that need to be brought into to this to make progress. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's another way that we can get things happening is by the sort of knowledge gathering advocacy at that level, which is different again than advocacy from a consumer point of view. But I just want to say, but you know, um, we're probably getting to the end here, but talking about messages that women get and messages that young women get particularly and what we conceive of as safe and the best way to have a baby. What we also know about birth and what we don't talk about very often is that birth is part of a woman's sexual continuum. Conception usually, not always, happens through sexual intercourse it, it, it all the pregnancy occurs in your reproductive organs and we can't separate it from that and and what women have been what women find often during that process is a measure of pleasure power immensely overwhelmingly positive feelings and euphoria can happen through physiological childbirth and the reason for that, I think, is because, you know, these it's all connected up. You know, like I said, it's, it's part of this continuum. And I think there's I, what I worry about is this misinformation that somehow cesarean section is going to save your vagina or whatever. There's this huge thing about young women having labiaplasties and trying to, you know, I don't know. That's a whole nother conversation. But... Giving birth does not ruin your vagina. Vaginas go back to how they were. They're designed to do that. It's not something to be frightened of and it's not going to ruin your vagina. 
birth is deeply transformative across a variety of levels. I would agree with Liz, whether you're talking from your personal experience or whether it's through deeply intimate experiences that when you have good relationships and these connected longer term relationships with families where you are their midwife, you know, for many babies or births or pregnancies often, and you get to know the whole family, some of the knowledge that is shared and transmitted, yes, and it hasn't been written down, is a, a whole different way of constructing knowledge and it's deeply transformative at the level of the physical, the intellectual, but also the spiritual, I, I would argue, and women describe it in those words as well. And in terms of cultural connection with women, whether they're from other diverse backgrounds or whether they're own, our own First Nations peoples in Australia, some of that knowledge is deeply, deeply transformative, deeply empowering, and I would say as powerful, if not more powerful, than, than many other knowledges that are seen as authoritative at the moment and important because at the level of the of the person or the woman, as you were speaking, Liz, those other things have much more power often and to be empowering to carry the woman through her, her life journey with her children and her family. So, yes, there is the ability, whether it's through the personal relationships, the care relationships and the, mod- the, the systemic model of health care offered to that woman to be deeply empowering or actually quite destructive on a range of levels and that's a great you know responsibility that I think our some of our newfound knowledges and prioritization of cultural awareness is going to take us a lot further along that journey to empowering women from all groups. Well, on this very important month, it's it's wonderful to be able to focus and discuss why midwifery is so important on this International Day to End Obstetric Fistula Day and also earlier in the month, as you mentioned, International Day of the Midwife. And I think that's possibly a good place for us to, to end on is, as you mentioned before, Roz, that emphasis on follow the data. That really was the main message to come out of that, the big United Nations report that was released on the International Day of the Midwife. Thanks so much, Nance, for the opportunity to um, to share our views. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Nance. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Liz Newnham and Dr. Roz Danellan fernandez for joining us on the Gender Card. Our pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.